0: Welcome to Two Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Frank Felicone.
1: And this is Chris Gasper.
0: And tonight we're doing a topsy-turvy edition of our usual podcast, um, what's become an annual tradition of the top five movies that Chris loves and Frank is indifferent to. Um, Alternately, we do that Frank hates, but Chris took a little pity on me this year, so it's only movies that I generally have no feeling towards one way or the other um but that he's for some reason uh overtly fond of um so i guess i have a couple of questions for you leading into the podcast um first of all why did you decide to do this instead of the hates list because i know some of the movies on the hates list would have been really funny uh, for us to talk about
1: because the hates list i don't think has enough movies that i actually love hmm right you're just gonna have to find a way to make me
0: watch um chicago someday because that's ultimately the goal of the hates list is to force me to watch oh something. no it's not
1: just that it's midnight run as well <laughs> oh man god i hate
0: midnight run so much and season of the witch <laughs> yeah i really hate that movie too there's a lot yeah well there's three right there so we've no, already, I know, s- I know. already spoiled the list I for know. the future I know. it's fine no one will remember um so is there anything that came close to making the list that you um, you pulled back on or there, do you want to keep play, yeah, play that close it,
1: to the vest? Yeah, there actually there there was because I before I finalized the list, I, I did watch a few other movies that I had an affinity for when I was younger and um, knew that you were kind of indifferent to uh, one of them was the Poseidon Adventure, the <laughs> the original Poseidon Adventure with Hackman. And, um, I watched that movie and I still really enjoyed it, but, um, it, it's not something I could probably argue that I, that I love, uh, necessarily, uh, even though it's a pretty enjoyable disaster movie. Um, another one was Gattaca, <laughs> which I just rewatched recently. And I remember thinking it was a really good sci-fi, um, like kind of like, you know, hard sci-fi like movie when I was like, whatever, 16 or something, 17. And, um i thought it still is a very good like twilight zone-esque sci-fi story that's very self-contained in watching it and i didn't dislike it whatsoever um i'm slightly more than indifferent with it watching it again but again i couldn't say that like i love that movie um i also watched fallen last year which i really enjoyed as a teenager the denzel washington john goodman serial killer supernatural movie and um while I still like some of the performances and, uh, you know, certain scenes in that movie, it's it's narratively, it's it's something I can't, like, necessarily, like, put that uh, Gasberry seal of approval on um, as something that I love. So, those are oh, three. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. That was, that was the three that I watched, like, beyond this to kind of test out. Yeah. I thought about watching... I I couldn't bring myself to pay for Dogville, Um and I don't know if I want to know what I think of that movie now, but I absolutely love that movie when I first I saw don't it. I Think I'm indifferent to Dogville. You said you were indifferent to Dogville one time, yeah?
0: Maybe. I mean, you want I you I want, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because I'm. I think Lars von Trier is pretty problematic to me anymore. Sure. And I've kind of distanced myself from a lot of his stuff, and I sort of find both dogville and um Mandalay, right that's the other one that's like that it is um, i don't like Manderley, but yeah. to be really pretentious mm-hmm. um even though they have really good performances yeah. um just yeah it's just not a i don't know if i want to watch a freaking student art film you know i'll like spend a few minutes on youtube not hour and a half of my life on the couch like suffering through chalk walls and stuff so
1: I'll, I'll, I'll remember that.
0: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, so I guess we can go ahead and get started. Sure. Um, so the way that these are ordered is Chris sent me the list, and I watched all the movies again, and then I sent him back an order um from the movie that I was least indifferent to, so the movie I enjoyed the most, to the movie I was most indifferent to, and/or enjoyed the least. Yeah. So that's how we're going. Like it's. Not necessarily the order that Chris likes these movies, in it's descending order from a movie that I genuinely kind of enjoyed watching to a movie that um, we'll talk about probably at length. so <laughs> right. Um, so number five on Chris's list is 1987's Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh, it's directed by Tony Scott, um, has a pretty robust cast in uh, Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, um, John Ashton, Ronnie Cox, uh, Brigitte Nielsen, Jurgen Procknow, Paul Reiser um it's got a 47 percent from critics and a 57 percent from audiences which is actually really surprising to me um yeah but why don't you go ahead and tell me uh what you love about this movie
1: okay so for those that don't know like um i don't go as in depth with my summaries uh as frank but um this picks up probably about two years after the original beverly hills cop it finds axel foley up to his same kind of undercover tricks in Detroit, um, and in meanwhile in Beverly Hills, uh, Taggart, Rosewood, and now Captain Bogle Mill are investigating a series of robbers, robberies called the Alphabet Crimes. Um, Bogle Mill is shot in an assassination attempt, and Foley ends up scamming his way into um, going to Beverly Hills and assisting his friends, much like the original movie, And they, you know, hijinks and Sue. And as they investigate these robberies, like they and it ends up leading them to like an arms ring syndicate, um, which they ultimately bring down. So um the things that I think I love this movie because I love the first movie so much. And when I was a kid, I probably saw I've seen this movie more um in my life. Like this was always on around the time, because you have to remember I'm seven um when this gets released so by the time it makes cable it's probably on like eight or so uh, maybe nine and it's like this was showing on like Cinemax or Showtime or something like that all the time and so I would see it constantly um and I do think I like the original better um but what this did is it satisfied that need to see these characters on my screen again um and I just really enjoy Axel foley character i enjoy the uh camaraderie between rosewood and taggart and foley and to see like that relationship between them and this uh, implication of a relationship between foley and Bogomil, mill um which is some of my favorite stuff in the first movie that that's that it's progressed into this kind of like you know kind of deep friendship where he knows Bogomil's mill's daughter you know and it's like they're really friendly um i think that concept really appealed to me um a lot even though he's not in a lot i'm a really big ronnie cox fan um in general and particularly as this character bogle mill um he's given a little bit more i think to do here um but in the first one where he really only has like four scenes maybe like overall they're good scenes but uh probably only like four scenes so he has a little bit more depth to what he gets to do here um but this is... It's just a fun movie. Like, I think that the crime is weaker in this. Um, like, the the actual, like, you know... Uh, I think it's a little convoluted with, like, the Dean Stockwell character and the Procnow character right. and the Nielsen character. I sure. think it's really convoluted. But I still think the jokes hit really well. Um, I think you can definitely see Murphy's doing a lot more improv in this. And there's, like, a, spe- there's a specific sequence where... Um, he's pretending to be a building inspector um and he's like conning the people that are doing the job at one point and he tells them that there's not there's supposed to be no right angles on the building and i i almost guarantee that's an improv um because i actually did look for the script of this and didn't see that in there um maybe it was a different draft but um and then when um there's a scene where he's scamming a secretary by trying to get into the building and he um uh he's bringing in oh what is it? it's a bag that he says what what is in the bag that does he say like it's, it's um audio activated yeah sound seeking bullets <laughs> right he's right so he's like making he's talking real low he's making her whisper um and he he improvs a line at the end of it is like this is the same way Bootsy got killed all he right. found was 20 dollars in a pair of adidas um there's there's shit like that that's hilarious to me um i really like the gerald ford joke in like the reprisal of the strip club scene from the first movie where they go back to a strip club and he gets in because he's telling them that um taggart is is gerald ford um the ex-president i think that's a really good sequence um I I like you know the undercover scene in the beginning of the movie. I think that's funny. I think that Rosewood's like kind of increase it, like the the more you find out about Rosewood and how he um is possibly a sociopath um is is pretty funny and i love like you know the end of the movie he's in like almost like the rucker hower wanted dead or alive gear with like the long trench coat and like you know the shotgun like you know like across his back um <clears throat> so yeah i I just think it's more of what i wanted with those characters that i love from the first movie and while it might not be the strongest narrative um i think it delivers on all those levels plus as like a really great 80s soundtrack too
0: yes um so this is actually i hadn't seen this movie uh in a long time like several decades um, this is a movie i actually associate more with beverly hills cop as a franchise than the first movie it's interesting Um, mostly because of um shakedown as the opening mm. opening song um, whenever i think of axel foley i always think of you know shakedown takedown mm-hmm. you busted mm-hmm. um the crime is are ridiculous like it doesn't even make any sense <laughs> sure this whole convoluted you know we're going to stage this series of crimes just so we can kind of eliminate one of our own and then sell these arms like under the auspices
1: of, I don't know, whatever. Well, he's robbing his own businesses. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. But it, yeah, To get money to buy guts. It's, it's fucking weird. It's a weird story. Yeah. Um, Brigitte Nielsen, pretty hilarious, is like,
0: I don't know. That's the other thing, too, is like, you know, they I, I guess they know how long before the silent alarm or whatever we'll alert the cops so they're just like counting down like in every crime and i don't know Mm -hmm. but it's fun to your point um murphy is like top-notch i think here in terms of his like comedic timing and he works really well um with um uh rosewater and the other one i can't remember (laughs) you know you just see a taggart um it's just a fun movie uh and i genuinely like i am not indifferent to this movie i genuinely enjoyed watching this movie um, had a really good time watching it the other night. So I actually saved this one for last because I thought
1: I might like this one the best and I wasn't disappointed, so. So let me ask you this. Why did you initially, why was this even on the list? Is it because it has been a long time since you've seen it or? and To or, be honest with you, is it I, action movies in general kind of? Or? No,
0: no, I I think I was confusing this with Beverly Hills Cop 3. Mm, um, Because when I was watching this, so we watched Beverly Hills Cop one a shot couple, of water a couple like, years ago yeah. Yeah. first year um, on the podcast and in watching that I remember thinking like man I, I remember other scenes being in this movie and I think it's just because I combined both the first and the second one of these movies into one film hmm. um, and that's kind of how I think of them so again like to me when I was watching stuff happen in this movie so the Gerald Ford stuff in the strip club the stuff in the beginning with him you know scamming um scamming the scammer with the fake credit cards mm-hmm. um, the stuff with riser like staying behind with the ferrari the soundtrack to this movie all that stuff the scenes with the, the heist scenes like all this that's all stuff that I really associate with Beverly Hills Cop so yeah but again it's like I watch these movies frequently and it probably has been since maybe like 93 mm. 94 since I've seen Beverly Hills Cop 2 maybe even longer ago than that
1: um but yeah uh, really enjoyed it so a lot of fun yeah and a good little uh, cameo two little cameos um gilbert godfrey um being yeah. in this, um and and chris rock and like his first movie role um in a brief scene um yeah i'd completely forgotten about the
0: chris rock stuff so that really caught me off guard i remember the gilbert godfrey character but mm-hmm. i guess because i didn't know who chris rock was at the time it sure. never really struck me that i had seen that man before but then obviously when you see him you're like oh my god like that's you know right yeah so obviously chris rock so. sure surprised yeah. that there's only a 57 from audiences like i'm not really sure this really feels like something that should be more appealing so i don't know
1: and i don't have an answer for you because when we do these i don't tend to do the, the deeper dive research into critical receptions and um all that stuff so yeah i'm i'm not I'm not too sure. I mean why that
0: is. Yeah, interesting. You got anything else you want to talk about with this um this gem of a comedy? No, sir. All right, so let's um go ahead and move on to number four. Uh number four is the third in the before trilogy, um of Richard Linkletter, Julie Delpy, and Ethan Hawke. Um Before Midnight, uh 2013, um, directed by Linkletter and then acted primarily by Delpy and Hawk and then written by all three of them collaboratively. Um has a ninety eight percent from critics and an eighty two percent from audiences.
1: So let's go ahead and talk about this. All right. So this movie picks up nine years after before sunset. Um and it finds Jesse and Celine. Um, they've been together now since that time, um, and they are on the last night of their Greek vacation. Uh, Jesse's son has, from a previous marriage, has just went back to the United States. Um, they have two young girls, and um, he's feeling guilty about his son. Um, and is considering going back to the states to be closer to him, but this conflicts with Celine, who's just got a new job, if I remember correctly, in France. And um, so they're currently vacationing in Greece, and um, a couple that is staying with them. It's all a bunch of writers, um, like him, and one of the other couples gifts them with a hotel room for the night, and they're going to like take care of the girls. Um, so. As with most of these movies, a lot of it is uh, kind of like walking and talking, or talking around tables and stuff like that. It's very, you know, um, you know, dialogue-heavy movie uh, with characters, you know, the characters interacting. Uh, so when they get to the hotel room, they start to have sex, being alone for the first time in a long time. Um, they get into a tiff that turns into like this kind of like full-fledged knockdown, drag-out argument. Uh, where all their resentments uh you know that they have had since committing themselves to one another and everything um kind of like come to light um so why do i like this so the first two movies and i know you're big fans of both a uh, big fan of both of those uh so am i and i particularly particularly the second one um it's a really good movie um those those movies are consumed with this like notion of romantic love um and kind of like you know is there a right person for somebody and you know can like that like you know kind of be sustained through time and now like once the couple's gotten together all these years later um it's like we get to see like how that plays out in the future and i'm always fascinated by that i'm fascinated by the idea of a clerks three for the same reason um you know even if it's not going to be very good i'm still kind of fascinated by like how where are these characters at you know and getting an update on their lives um and what we see here is a couple that still have a deep knowledge of one another. There's they. They still have a both of them still have a strong wit. Wit. They still have a strong banter. There's still a playfulness despite the stressors of time and life and children. Um, you know, and they. It all goes to hell in this movie, kind of, and everything kind of comes to the surface. And I, I think this is like a meditation on you know what happens when you're in a relationship for x number of years with somebody um that you have like a uh, you do have a deep affection for but like you know like you know time you know time you know just takes place um during the middle of this movie there's a there's a scene where it's like all these couples are conversing around the table and i think it's i think it's one of the best dinner conversation scenes i've seen in quite a while and the, the the entire thing kind of turns into this like discussion of the ideas of love and um you know somebody mentions that i think it's their uh, mother or something like that it's you know says like do not be too consumed with romantic love friendships and work she says is what brought her the most happiness in life um one of the the couples that get on the vacation like you know the guy out of it who's kind of a dick you know says at one point that you know that's the thing that fucks us up is this idea of a soulmate of someone who will come and complete us and save us from taking care of ourselves um at that point, brilliantly, it cuts to the, the couple and Celine is just staring like intently ahead um, as he's saying that. And Jesse, while nobody else is eating, Jesse just kind of looks down casually and starts kind of like slowly eating some food. Um, <clears throat> uh, almost saying that these are couples that uh, this is a couple that thought that way at one point is that like, you know, this was the soulmate and, that, and, and you know, they were going to be there forever and complete them um you know it moves on to um the old man that owns like the, the chateau or whatever and they ask him was grandma your soulmate and he says well she was more rational than that she took care of herself and asked me to do the same we had plenty of room to meet in the middle we were never one person always two we preferred it that way at the end of the day it's not the love of one person that matters but the love of life um So you get these like different ages talking about like the concept of love and Celine and uh, Jesse are having to sit there and like listen to this when there's obviously tension building underneath of their relationship the entire time. So I think it's a fascinating like dinner conversation that kind of goes back and forth, but it's all... The whole focus of it is on paying attention to those two characters. And you start getting a sense of like what is going on in that relationship through that scene. And then you have the traditional walk and talk scene in the middle of it where like, you know, they're trying to kind of like almost like walk to they're walking to the hotel and they're flirting with one another or at least attempting to and it's much more reminiscent of before sunrise and before sunset, but they're just off in some ways like you know it's a little bit more antagonistic than it was before and then by trying to like rekindle the relationship and you know everything going to hell it is one of the most realistic arguments in this movie that i think i have ever seen um i know you don't particularly care for like you know like big arguments and stuff like that in movies like you know marriage story has one and there's plenty of you know movies that of this that have them i think this is the most well done Um, I think it's two highly intelligent people and two people that know each other very deeply pulling out information as needed and being able to counter each other like brilliantly inside the argument to hurt each other with words as much as possible. Um, That is not an easy thing to watch whatsoever. This is a hard movie to me to watch, but in terms of the, way that these two have crafted these characters and delved into their psyches and then portrayed this on film I think is one of the most realistic probably relationships I've ever seen as difficult as it is um, and I don't know i mean even despite despite the pain of all this and i do think it ends up in a hopeful place where it's like maybe they can get past all this stuff now that the resentments have come out um there's this like scene where he pretends to be like a time traveler at the end like you know at at a dinner table and i do think it ends up in a place where maybe they can make this work and maybe they do a movie in five years again and um that's not the case it it would be in a year and a half okay um because that's right it's every nine years right um so um so yeah i i think it's i think it's a beautiful movie in the most perverse way possible um by having to like actually see these people that you've come to grow and care about over the course of 20 years almost like deal with a real relationship (laughs) and real jealousies and real insecurities
0: you make me not want to shit on it now, as hard as <laughs> I'd initially intended.
1: Um. Now, now you know. Now, now, now you know how I feel all the time. So, I still think that
0: there's a chemistry between these two, and I think there's parts of this movie that work really well. Um, I think the opening. 20 some minutes until they're really like at the Greek villa with all their friends is really good. Um, I think a lot of the stuff you talk about with kind of like those simmering resentments uh, takes place in that, like when they're in the car, but you still see that they can still love each other. Mm -hmm. I absolutely despise the dinner scene. And I think it doesn't work at all in the context of what these movies are, which is an examination of their relationship. Um, I find it to be pretentious and like watching I don't know like an episode of the Gilmore Girls that maybe isn't trying to be as quirky as the Gilmore Girls usually is but like wholly unrealistic conversation honestly Um, although there are parts of that scene that I like like I like the way it's filmed I like the eating I like those characters but not in the context of what before sunrise and before sunset are Um, I really, really, really enjoy the scene of them walking from the villa through, like, the Greek, you know, like, Mm -hmm. seaside to the hotel. I think that's amazing that I like that as much as the opening, like, I like their interplay, I like their interactions, I like the little things they do that show that they know how to get in under each other's skin, but also that they know how to, like, kind of bring it back and, like, love each other. Mm -hmm. I think the scene in the hotel room is so contrived and number one, Ethan Hawke is gaslighting Julie Delpy the entire time, like consistently. Absolutely. Like using psychological tricks to instant, like call her crazy and turn the argument around where he's being rational. And she calls him out on all this stuff. Like, so when I say contrived I don't mean that it's not well written because it really is and it's well performed but if he's so underhanded that that's what he goes to how are they still together like it makes no sense like there's no way that he's so cold and conniving to because her counter arguments are all based on like her feelings and her passion and that's a big part of the argument they have Mm -hmm and he's just about finding a way to twist a knife and then make it seem like she's the one that put the knife in her so when that happens and then he goes down and just casually like joking around and brings her back to doing her sultry bimbo voice for him like implying that at least for the moment everything's okay it feels so unearned and it also doesn't feel like them like it doesn't feel like the feeling you get from watching before sunrise and before sunset and we we talked about this off air like privately it can't can't be though but it can be because it's a movie yeah it can because it's a movie it doesn't have to be like
1: some your argument is
0: it's fake (laughs) of course it's fake (laughs) well yeah of
1: course it's all of it's fake
0: the reason those first two movies work so well is because they are everything that like almost i I believe that almost everyone in the world has a person that is someone that they look back and say, what if, you know, what if sure. I would have done this? or What if I would have made this decision? Or, you know, what if I'd have married this person instead of that person? And the beauty of before sunrise and before sunset is they cut you off before you find out what the answer to the, what if is, it sets up the what if situation and then just cuts it off. Mm-hmm so here it's like i don't want to be brought down by the answer to the what if is i turn into this bickering couple of assholes you know what i mean like it's just not i think it's very well acted i think it's very well written i think the direction is some of link letters best but i just don't care about them as characters at that point anymore because it's completely the antithesis of what those other what makes those other movies great and i think it's unnecessary i just think it's I think it's a misstep. I think it's, I'm not saying you can't have tension and conflict in their relationship, but you make Ethan Hawke so completely unlikable and unrelatable almost from the idealistic romantic, you know, fly by the seat of his pants guy that he is in the first two movies that makes him like endearing. And he's just like, I, I, think he, I,
1: I think he's got the hints of being that prick in uh, the second, i don't in the second one not like that and not, not like I, no well no but you don't see him ever get extremely emotional in those movies and because he doesn't have to because it's all about the fantasy of 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 romantic love like of like like you know like can these two work out like this is the first time you've ever seen this character be really poked and prodded and questioned about things and he turns into a man child who sits there and tries to yes absolutely gaslight her and um and lessen and minimize her right that's that's something i want to watch right like this character that
0: i've come to enjoy like oh let's just destroy him over the course of a movie because why there's no reason for it it doesn't make any sense in the context of the other two movies I might actually hate this movie, even though I enjoyed watching it. But like compared to compared to the other two, which I love uh-huh. both those movies right. a lot. Like I do not I just don't agree. I think it's a really bad artistic choice and I think it's just really tone deaf in context to what they've done before. And he cheated on her. Yeah. And it's like, he cheated on her because at one point he thought maybe she blew some, like, he's always obsessed with her, like, Mm -hmm. blowing some other dude. And it's, I don't know, man. I just, it doesn't fit in with the other two movies. And I wish that it was a different movie. Yeah. I don't mind conflict. Honestly. Like, I think it's, I think they're really well acted scenes. I just don't, I don't buy it. Like, that's not who those characters are. Or at least it's not who he is. And if it is, then it completely invalidates the first two movies, and I don't want to think like that.
1: I think the argument is it's who he's become. Not who he is. I think you have a bitter outlook on life, so you're like, yeah, I knew it. No, not at all. I mean, I, I, I do think that he's a little full of himself in the second one. You see it he's the writer he's full, now. He's
0: full of himself in the first
1: one too. Yeah, but he's still young and naive and he has the he has the he has youth on his side to be a little bit like, you know, egotistical. The ego is different in the second one because he's the writer. And now he's really the writer. And yeah, you're right. That conversation at the dinner table, it's like that's the world they live in now. And because he's the famous, you know, the the famous novelist. Um yeah. That's the world they live in, That's and that's the world he wanted to be in. Well, It ain't the world I want to look at, so here we are. <laughs> All right. We can move on, though.
0: All right, cool. Uh, number three movie on your list is 1995's Desperado, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Um, loose remake of his, whatever that is, 91 movie, um, El Mariachi. Mm-hmm. Uh, starring Antonio Banderas, Salma Hayek, um, Joaquin De Maida, De day almeida sorry um cheech marin and steve buscemi had a 67 percent from critics which is surprising to me because i remember it being kind of like lauded and a 79 percent from audiences so regale us with the tale of desperado Chris <laughs> that's very
1: so i assume most people have seen desperado at some point but i yeah it's i guess like an adaptation like largely like a remake of el mariachi in some way yeah um that finds banderas playing the mariachi character this time around and it follows his quest to find bucho who is a mexican drug lord who's um behind the killing of his lover and ruining his guitar playing hand um and so he carries a brief, or a, a guitar case full of guns around with him from town to town as he tries to find out where Bucho is and he comes across like these people that work for him and as he's trying to find him and kills all of them like all the time. Along the way he meets Carolina, who's a bookstore owner in the town that Bucho kind of runs um he ends up falling in love with her you know they get chased um you know by bucho's people and bucho finds him and eventually though he there's big gunfights and he eventually ends up getting to bucho's compound where you know you know the climax plays out or whatever um sound pretty indifferent to that ending i don't know (laughs) uh well the endings yeah i mean well let me start there um that's that's my last note is like i i think that i think the last 20 minutes of this movie or so is probably the thing that is the worst about this movie to me I um i think that the big gunfight is before he gets to bucho's compound is clunky um i think it's really odd editing uh, i i have read that Um, they had to cut a lot to get an r rating at the time so that probably explains some of the weird editing choices um that take place in that scene uh regardless though it doesn't really come off great in the movie and on film as you watch it um and while i love the shakespearean kind of feel of this thing with the mariachi and bucho being revealed as brothers and you know all that kind of stuff it feels like it just happens and then it the movie's over and you don't actually get to see the resolution or like of this like really whatsoever and i just felt like the that scene at the end with uh, the mariachi and bucho um could have been played more or done better or had something to it um so it just feels like Yes, it's my brother, and you know, and some gunshots, and then we just, you know, it's it's done. Um, I, I just think it's a weak ending. Um, overall. I mean, we know now that Rodriguez has problems with, I think, both emotion in his characters a lot of times and, and and the characters maybe in general. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of a like a letdown of an ending. I don't think it's a shitty ending, but I think it's a letdown of an ending. Um and I can I defend it a little bit, even though I also agree that it's not that great
0: of an ending and I'm not going to defend it. I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a moment. Mm -hmm. I think Rodriguez in his mind was crafting what he saw as ultimately this large Mexican myth that he could interweave ideas and characters from that basically like you're seeing things from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like he's cutting He's cutting it so there's not a definitive answer to that myth where it's like a later tale, or if you go back to El Mariachi or whatever, sure. This is, you know, seeing it from someone else's perspective, or you know, you're never gonna know the truth because this is some kind of like passed down spoken, like oral history type thing.
1: Sure. And 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 one of the things I love in this movie is the opening scene and i think the opening scene i love it for a lot of reasons but the one of the things i love about it is it establishes exactly what you're talking about is it starts with storytelling you know and myth building right. you know and stuff like that, as buscemi like you know sits there and comes to this bar and tries to scare everybody by telling them about this last bar he was just in where all these people have been murdered and everything um so yeah and, and it's something he tries to capitalize on at tarantino's insistence with once upon a time in mexico um to to lesser results than than this is i think but um but yeah no, i know i i get exactly what you're saying um i don't know it just feels unfulfilling to me at the end right uh, I, I mean look yeah. i i
0: agree from a filmmaking standpoint and like a viewer standpoint i'm just you know
1: yeah but there is plenty I think to like about this movie though I mean like despite the I think like the lackluster nature of the ending and that's something re-watching it this time really struck me a lot was that ending but watching it again I realized one of the reasons I love this movie so much is Benderis himself mm-hmm. I think Benderis is fantastic in this role and I think I think I, I think it now, and I thought it then. it maybe didn't have the words then. Is I think he was a he's like a brush of breath of fresh air in terms of being an action hero. Um, you know, you don't see many um, Latinos like you know taking up that mantle. Um, certainly around this time, like for an American release, at least uh, you know um, you don't see that. I thought that was really different at the time.
0: Right, L- L- Latinos that clearly identify as being, you know, he's firmly and proudly a mexican yes yeah Mm -hmm.
1: and he talks softly a lot of times like you know not that he doesn't yell occasionally but it's like most of the time he, he talks very softly um he's calm and collected you never see him getting like super agitated or anything like that you know he's a bit melancholy um you know but like real melancholy not like you know i'm gonna drink this bottle of liquor melancholy that like is like shorthand in some action you know movies and stuff like that and i think just think he he's just cool like you know he like in in 95 when this came out i just thought like the 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 way he moved like you know with the gunplay like the whole the whole stuff he does with the guitar and like you know um like you know like flipping it around and stuff as he hands it to the little boy like he just kind of like has this kind of cool factor to him um that I think just makes it for a really interesting action star um in this movie I think he delivers everything really well I think that's like there's some really memorable stuff he does like in terms of like how he delivers dialogue so I think like he really is like to me the driving force of why I like this movie so much as Banderas um I like the Bashimi stuff um at the beginning of this movie i like buscemi and his damn big wet eyes like trying to like kind of annoy the fuck out of you know the bartender and like telling the story to try to like scare all these people i think that's um you know like he's like trying to be a herald for for the mariachi um i like that idea and i like the way buscemi does it um i like the I know it's like kind of like probably a lot of it's like ripped off a woo, but it's like I really like the pistol play in this a lot of times, Um, I think some of the specific scenes are really inventive. Um, I think there's some really funny stuff like one of my favorite bits is um, the 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 thin um, gentleman that comes out of the back of the bar that Cheech Marin runs. And they like sit there and like, you know, have this like showdown and they run out of ammo and they're just picking up guns and trying to shoot each other and all the guns are like out of ammo. Um, I I think that's a really funny bit like I really like that a lot. Um, I think there's some really iconic like shots in this, like um, when Mariachi's been stabbed, like he like is like leaning against the wall as he walks like in like a long shot and you just see the streak of blood like from his arm like just like smeared across like the wall as he's walking i think like there's stuff like that that's really cool um him passing as she's as carolina is singing at one point there's that shot of like um uh behind her of the of the guys walking like you can see their silhouettes in the windows and she's sitting there playing guitar and singing and he's like sees them coming and like he passes the guns like in front of her face as she's singing. I think that stuff's really cool. Like um so I think there's a lot of really like neat scenes in this um that happen. oh uh, anything else oh and lastly um Joaquin de Almada um I think Bucho is a great character and I think this guy plays him really well um there's like this like there's this like haunted aspect to the character in some way like when he hears the little boy practicing his guitar on the street from the from the bar after everybody's been killed and kind of goes out there and like you know looks because it's like it's almost like the the spirit of his brother like you know in some ways like I think he does that stuff really well I think he has like a really good Kind of like um, low key, like sense of comedy about him, like where like comedic timing, where like he does some really funny stuff there. Um, but I really like that character. There's like a Robert the Bruce element to that character to me where it's like he's trapped in this hell of his own making like to the point of like just being completely paranoid and consistently angry um and i don't know maybe it's an archetype that i just dig or something like that but i, I really like uh, the character and i like that actor
0: that's a good Comp surrounded by idiots <laughs> yeah <clears throat> yeah um i don't really have anything much negative to say about this movie um it's too glossy for me In comparison to what he's trying to do um it feels very overproduced sometimes um especially because i think that el mariachi is so raw and like compelling especially you know for a like a a premiere feature like first time you see rodriguez for me anyway is like seeing el mariachi and i think that at the time i kind of saw it as a ripoff of itself in a lot of ways Mm. um and I'm just, I, I find that as I get older and I think more about him, I'm just not that big of a fan of Rodriguez's stylistic choices. And the things that he's interested in are not necessarily the things that I'm interested in. Hmm. Or it's the same things and we just look at them differently. Um, but Banderas is fantastic in it. Um, Almeida is fantastic in it. Um, I love Salma Hayek in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very embarrassing and uncomfortable sex scene in this movie, which is like, super rodriguez in the 90s not uncomfortable it's just silly like it's just unnecessary it is when it plays out um and i hate like the rocket launcher guitar thing like i think that's silly um Mm -hmm. oh uh what's his name um danny trejo really uh doesn't really like do a whole lot but like you know, lends his impressive presence to the movie sure. in a way that's that's entertaining.
1: Yeah, and I think um, a Knives character is really cool. Like,
0: yeah. You know. yeah. I just kind of find it like, I find it real derivative of other stuff and while I don't think it's bad and you know, I didn't have any problem watching it, like I would just rather go watch the things that influence it rather than watch it, you know what I mean? Because I don't think mm-hmm. it does enough like new like, I'll go watch Hard Boiled and El Mariachi and feel much more fulfilled than watching, you know, desperado so
1: yeah i mean and look this is definitely both this and Beverly hills capo would say are certainly have nostalgia for me um you know uh and and this is another one and this is the one that i'm probably going to be the most critical of is this is this movie um out of the five and but um but yeah there was something about like you know being being so in the tarantino in late 94 and i can't remember what when this came out but it's like you know seeing this um you know with with tarantino and like i i i agree with you in terms of tarantino seen how you feel about that which i know you don't like but it's like knowing tarantino is in it and buscemi's in it you know um and like all these people that like you know we like and I'm trying to remember yeah i guess from Dust dawn wasn't until the next year but so this came this came out about a year after um right but um
0: <clears throat> but yeah you're, so,
1: yeah so, so i so i i think that like there was a time and a place to this movie for me and i hadn't seen el mariachi yet so i think there's difference there as well so i was really taken in by this movie in 1995 mm-hmm. when i saw it in the theater but
0: so i wasn't gonna bring this up but let's talk about this briefly before yeah. you know we we wrap this movie up. I find the Tarantino stuff to be really. I whenever we talk about movies, I always talk about like something mean too in the moment or two on the nose, like sociologically or politically, where I think it dates itself too much. And I think that I think that for a long time Tarantino's performance in this movie did that for me because you were seeing him everywhere. And he was in all these indie movies and he was on. Freaking MTV and in Rolling Stone with that like statico like rat tat tat like mm-hmm. delivery and that big fucking stupid chin and <laughs> when I watched it this time like having so much distance between myself and like the heyday of like Tarantino's outward celebrity, mm-hmm. um, I didn't mind it as much. So I used to really hate that performance, and it was actually one of my least favorite parts of the movie. Typically and i've seen desperado like four or five times at least mm-hmm. i think i saw desperado like three times in the theater because different mm-hmm. people wanted to right. see it but right. i didn't mind tarantino as much this time i guess so but yeah, i still
1: I, I still find it very stilted a lot of times like and very gimmicky um, yeah and it again but it's 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 one of those things like you've got lightning
0: in a bottle and tarantino's the dude that like really pushed rodriguez to the forefront and allowed him to was was his hype man almost in terms of like getting this guy this movie? So it yeah, makes sure. sense that you put Tarantino in it, but um
1: yeah, and he wrote it for Tarantino, I know, and but Buscemi was going to it was the Buscemi character was going to be that character, and then Tarantino said he would he wanted to do it, and so he just let Tarantino do it. Of course, I mean, but um, but yeah, so yeah, I, like I said, I, I mean, I think as an, as a viewing experience, like now. I'm lesser on this movie than I was in 1985, but this this held like this certainly like I think it influenced me in some ways to go backwards and look at some of the stuff that influenced it. And so it it still holds a special place in my heart. And I still think there's a lot of really great stuff about this that I love. There are aspects of this movie that I love. So
0: Yeah, I get it. All right. You want to move on to the next one? Let's go to number two. So the number two movie on our list this evening is 2017 Gerald's game. Uh, Mike Flanagan directed adaptation of a Stephen King novel, uh, starring, starring Carlo Gugino and Bruce Greenwood, currently holds a 91% from critics and a 70% from audiences,
1: and tell me what you love about this. All right, so this is based on the Stephen King novel of the same name. Um, it follows a couple, Jesse and Gerald, who are trying to rekindle their marriage, by taking a trip to an isolated lake house. Um, Gerald, in order to spice things up in their sex life, uh, brings handcuffs with him and um, handcuffs Jesse to the bed um, and then tries to role play um, some sort of consensual, non consent scenario with her, where um, basically it's like a rape fantasy. And Jesse rebukes him they argue Gerald has a heart attack and dies, Um, and this leaves Jesse handcuffed to the bed with no feasible way to escape really. Um, At that point the movie turns into a psychological horror where Jesse's forced to deal with her own trauma, um, particularly molestation, um, when she was a teenager and um she has to endure conversations with um gerald's kind of specter um like and her own doppelganger um and then it's like you know there's this kind of mystery of whether she's actually being stalked by a killer like at the lake house um while she's you know handcuffed um but a lot of it takes place like is more of a psychological kind of you know horror of her dealing with like her own psyche and you know with these you know scenes of like you know possibly there's somebody else there and maybe there's not um so first of all i guess i should admit and and i think you feel the same way frank uh, in this regard is like i'm a big mike flanagan mark Mm -hmm. um like i i don't think there's a thing that he's done so far that i haven't liked in some way um like like probably his like worst movie is that uh um prequel that he did overall and there's still some really great stuff in that um and I um yeah I, I'm a big fan of his. I think he's maybe the best horror like kind of like writer director that's um, going on nowadays and I and he is very much in the vein of like kind of like a like a Stephen King point 2.0 as opposed to like you know some of the more you know prominent feature directors like um you know uh, Eggers and um the guys doing men and you know like those guys um why I like this movie so much I watched it during COVID maybe the first year of COVID so it was probably like two years ago that I watched this for the first time um and I, I think I held off on it for a while because you were kind of like indifferent to the entire thing and um finally I just decided to watch that and um 1922 kind of like in the same night um both movies that i enjoyed overall but um i I was really taken by this one and i think the 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 main thing is like while i remember reading this book as a teenager i um i remembered only certain aspects of it and i might have been too young when i read it but i think the as an adult the scenario here is absolutely horrifying to me which is the i like I, I'm claustrophobic to some degree, and I have autonomy issues um, where I need autonomy. So the idea of being like handcuffed and trapped to something doesn't necessarily appeal to me in any way. Um, And then when it turns into the psychological horror, and she's like, kind of like imagining Gerald as like this representation of her own psyche, and then her own her own self as her own psyche, and like having to deal with the self loathing and the self criticism, um, it parallels. I don't know if I've ever talked about this in the podcast. I know I told you it parallels an experience I had one time with sleep paralysis, um, where almost like kind of something similar happened to me that's one of the more terrifying things that's ever happened in my life so i think giving that context like this was all particularly horrifying to me um just conceptually um and i think that from the king from from king's novel like not that i've read it recently but King's not the greatest dialogue person in the world. And I think the adaptation here has really upgraded the dialogue in a lot of ways, um, to where there's some really striking and memorable stuff at times. Um and like case in point, I guess, like of one scene is when Gerald has died and he first reappears <clears throat> in this kind of like specter form, like, you know, in her imagination, there's this conversation about this. Um, joke that he told like a year prior at an office party or something like that about like you know what is a woman anyway and the punchline to it is like a life life support system for a cunt or something and that whole like dynamic between um Gugino and Greenwood as they like kind of like go back and forth about that conversation of what she what she thought at the time and what like internally and what she did externally um, is just like so well done to me Um, it's almost like Sorkin-esque in some ways in terms of like the the dialogue and the way they go back and forth and um, the way it's written um I th- think this is probably the role of Gagino's career overall it's it's I really loved her as the mother in the haunting of Hill house. um, but I mean, this is something that like... She's the absolute driving force of in every way. And she has to display every range of emotion that you can imagine in terms of fear, shock, and pity and determination, and like, you know, like going through all these range of emotions. And I think she just absolutely nails the role. Um, Greenwood as this kind of like, you know, foil and secondary character, another great choice. He's a guy I'm a big fan of. Um, somewhat reminiscent of his I guess his role from Johns from Cincinnati where it's like he's this like um, oily, self-absorbed like chauvinist in some ways um, and I I find the movie extremely uncomfortable to watch on almost almost every level like down to like the relationship between the two um, in the beginning and the like rape fantasy sequence and then her having to deal with like you know her own psyche and um god there i wrote down like one thing here let me find it um her her doppelganger tells at Rome point our friend in the hall is every man you've ever known talking about this this dog who is also part of the story of like this like starving dog um he had kobe ribeye until he smelled gerald your father had your mom until you were nice and ripe and gerald the late hours the mystery callers the weekend trips you ignored it but you knew his hunger for you had faded and a dog has got to eat um there's there's this level of just hostility internally like in her mind towards herself that is really difficult to watch and is something that i guess sadly i can sympathize with at times um of that kind of like level of like self-criticism um henry thomas who's a regular uh of mike flanagan's works um plays the father in flashbacks in this and he's another guy henry thomas for anybody that doesn't know is the kid in et um and now that he's like in his like 50s or whatever uh i think he's become like a really great damn character actor in all these flanagan movies that he stars in and this is is probably just like he, he shows such a range between all these different movies but it's um that he's in tv shows but absolutely disgusting and uncomfortable to watch is the father who molests his daughter um Awful, difficult scene during the eclipse where, like, the molestation takes place outside. Um, and then an even more uncomfortable scene where he tries to gaslight her, uh, into not like telling the mother about what happened. Um, brilliantly acted, um, extremely just like, uh, chilling like you know like almost like edgy your seat like you know fingernails in your palm type you know viewing um that creates a lot of just emotions and i don't know i just think uh i know you'll you'll differ some in this i just think that extremely well acted i think it's extremely well written um i think he's a very classic director in a lot of ways that has like at times like really like interesting shots um this is before dr sleep this is like i think even before hill house maybe um it might be the thing he did before hill house sleep and before, yeah. yeah and it's like i just think that it's like he's really grown since in, in these past like six years he's even grown even more as a really capable storyteller um and learn how to use even better i think like this kind of like psychological um storytelling like you know and how it interacts with the real world um i think the weakest part of this movie is the last kind of again maybe like the last like 15 20 minutes where it kind of like deals with um the serial killer that really did exist and you know stuff like that um i still think there's some good lines in there um and I, I like the idea. I didn't necessarily always prefer the execution at the end of this movie, but I think that core story of her getting out, um, like of her being trapped and then getting out, is um, is really well done. So I really like this movie a lot. Um, so you're going to break my heart when you tell me all the things that's you...
0: no. <laughs> so I agree with a lot of what you said. I mean, I think that it's, I think it's well written. Um, I think it's really well acted. I think there's some very psychologically uncomfortable concepts you have to deal with when you're watching this movie um i don't like the story man and i don't like Mm. the source material and it's just not interesting to me that's it i mean there's nothing aesthetically or artistically or production wise that i can fault in this movie um i think that for being what amounts to basically like uh like a one scene play and basically like a one woman show in a lot of ways aside from like the Greenwood character I think it's pretty brilliantly directed I think Flanagan gets a lot of tension out of what could be really boring to watch otherwise Mm -hmm. but man I just don't care I don't know I just I don't know it's just not interesting to me and I think it's really because like I read Gerald's Game and Gerald's Game came out really on, like, the cusp of my sort of distancing myself from Stephen King in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, where I had been, like, a really hardcore Stephen King fan for the majority of my childhood and teenage years. Um, I just didn't really care. I I found Gerald's game to be, like, off-putting when I read it, and there's something about King's fixation on um, sexual violence and sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. That I kind of find exploitive in a way, in the way that he does it. Mm-hmm. Um, not not to say that it's like grotesque or whatever, but it's just like there's scenes in it, there's scenes in Tommyknockers, there's scenes mm-hmm. like all these novels have this element where he puts it in there, and it's just like it's 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 cheap heat to me and it's to have a whole novel that's basically like the the core of it that and Dolores Claiborne in a lot of ways. Like I
1: just, um, I don't know. Which these are companion pieces like in the novels, right? If I remember correctly, right. Isn't the eclipse like the thing that ties those two together? Yeah. That's,
0: that's the central thing that both those things take place. So the events of Gerald's game, the events of Dolores Claiborne are happening at the same time as the flashback portions of Gerald's game are happening um look i think Aguino you know, is a pretty fantastic actress um i've been a fan of hers for a while um i think before i wake is the worst mike flanagan movie by the way that would be my argument mm. i don't think I. i think that's not as good as um
1: that's the one with tom tom jane right yeah i just want my kids back yes yes mm-hmm. And That's what he wants because his kid is. A, it is, uh, I know that's why I said it. Yeah, psychic, I, think, psychic I see. Demon I think there's some, yeah, I don't like the story of that, but I actually really like the performances from the two principals, um, mm-hmm. the parents and stuff in it. Like, I, I think there's like an emotional core of that movie, even if I'm not really a big fan of the narrative. I would argue that that exists in Ouija, too. And I really enjoy the setup and the execution of that movie a lot. The setup of Ouija
0: is. Absolutely excellent! Like the first,
1: like 15, 20 minutes, or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: I mean, the payoff, maybe whatever, but he's yeah. directing like a big budget horror prequel, so I don't know. Like you sure. got to give him some leeway there. Sure. Yeah, like I'm not. I I don't don't. And I said this when we talked about Gerald's Game when I first saw it. Is that like I'm not going to shit on it, you know? And I don't think it's like a bad movie. It's just not my thing, and it's just not something I'm interested in. I guess. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. And see indifference, right?
1: Sure. Anything else you'd like to talk about? Um? No, I'm good. I, I was just thinking about how I need to trigger you next year um, with a hate list. Um, oh man, yeah.
0: Hey, um, what's it called? Uh, Murder Club? Is that what that show is called?
1: Is that Midnight soon? Mid Midnight Club? Is um, Mid- October? I think. So. Oh, okay. That's cool. Um, uh, and then they should be wrapping. Wrapping up, um, *Fall of House* usher. Yeah, that's too, that's, right? that's
0: 2023. But yeah, if he holds true, we're probably gonna have to wait until at least like September, October before we get to see. Yeah. The um, but yeah, he's
1: because Langley just got replaced by Greenwood in that movie because of like some accusation of um misconduct. Oh, Frank Franklin Jolla? Yeah,
0: yeah, Jolla. Yeah. Uh, Flanagan is. Flanagan is the most classically talented, consistent director working in horror. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that, um, you know, Eggers,
1: what's um, the hereditary
0: guy? I can't, Ari Aster, Aster. That's it. Yeah. Um, probably more talented to do the directed annihilation that has that
1: um, man, Garland. Yeah, uh, yeah, man yeah, movie coming. Alex Garland. Out, like, yeah,
0: I, I think those guys are all like there's something really compelling about all of them but like you can sit down and watch a mike Flanagan creation and it is going to be solid and well thought out and well acted Mm -hmm. and incredibly tightly paced and directed throughout the entire thing and you'll come away from it um feeling something you know
1: i mean we we did a special episode when it came out like for all of his stuff, right? Like <laughs> right? Yeah, we have, we um, have so far, yeah. And um I still think the Haunting Hill House is I think the Haunting Hill House, if you've never watched anything by this guy, like the Haunting Hill House, I think is one of the best it's only one season. It's a it's a mini series, I guess, is the old language for it. But I think it is maybe one of the best things I've seen in the past 20 years. I absolutely love that like television movies whatever i think the haunting hill house is one of the most brilliant things i've ever seen i watched it three times now and it's amazing let me ask you this though about like king's never king's never wrote an autobiography has he uh I know he's wrote a little, wrote wrote a lot about writing and mentioned personal stuff in it, but has he, has he written an autobiography? Do you know? I mean, if you read like *Dance Macabre* or *On Writing*,
0: I I think there's like really autobiographical elements to both of them. Yeah, I don't know the king. <laughs> I think the king is so down to earth in a lot of ways that he probably doesn't consider himself to be like. Uh, maybe there's a biography on him i don't know but i i think he just prefers to like tell the stories of his life through his work and like in a relation to other things and not necessarily like because you know i mean there's all the stories about him like when he was at college you know like throwing away his work and his wife saving it and mm-hmm. like you know the stories of stephen king's like right basically so well i'm
1: just wondering and i don't want to like get like sued for defamation here it's just like the fact that like child molestation is so prominent in so many of the stories that's why i was wondering if there's an autobiography or biography yeah anyway because it makes me wonder if he is so he does use his life, own life so much it makes me wonder like i mean i've never read that again I that's I why
0: that's why to me and i i hate to say like this that's why like to me i always kind of consider just like cheap heat from him Mm -hmm. that it's like this is something that horrifies people so i'm just gonna put this in here right Right. and i mean one of my favorite books of his from the past like 20 years is um that outsider book Mm -hmm. which i thought was a fantastic novel and but the same thing with like um uh Doctor Sleep, in a way, and um, that companion piece, uh, Nosferatu, um, mm. that his son wrote, mm-hmm. very much pulls from the idea of like the horror of people mistreating children. Sure. And that's a horrific thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. there's plenty of horror movies that are built around that, but I think the king just recognizes that it's a very insidious fear that most people have, you know, that causes like. A revulsion internally without much effort, maybe. Because sure. well, there's, there's molestation in a lot. Of his in books, a lot. You in a it, lot. Yeah. yeah. yeah Even and if it's just and, like and there's rape, rape in a
1: lot of his books. Yeah.
0: Even if it's just like brief mention or there's like, because he always does that thing where he'll do, I don't know what you call it, like the floating omniscient narrator between mm-hmm. like a multitude of people True. and, you know, needful things and Salem's lot and. Like I said, it, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the most horrific scenes in the book of it, in the, it in it, the book, I don't know, however you fucking want to say that is, um, the scene with the kid that ends up like murdering his baby brother, um, when he gets killed, you know, he's basically molesting Henry Bowers in the junkyard, right. Um, before he dies. So I don't know. Anyway, yeah, this isn't, um,
1: <laughs> no, we're, we're going to turn this into this stephen king molesting episode oh my god uh, no um but i hope well, it's I do been a good th- run I, folks I, I i do think that flanagan captures the horror of this molestation in this movie without going oh yeah into the, gr- into the gross detail that king tends to do in a lot of his books so it's like it's tasteful inside of something so horrific like the way he deals with it you're still horrified yeah
0: I mean, it's not, it's it's, not
1: graphic. It's not exploitive.
0: Right. Yes. To the actors basically. And it's not like meant to titillate you at all. It's meant to horrify. Yes. And it does. It does a good job. So. All right. All right. So here's a talk about a movie that molested me. Um, 1991's JFK uh, directed by Oliver Stone with a very impressive cast including Kevin Costner, Sissy Spacek, uh, Joe Pesci, Tommy Lee Jones, Gary Oldman, uh, Jay Sanders, Michael Rooker, and Laurie Metcalf. uh, Currently holds an 85% from critics and an 88% from audiences. Um, So let's dive into the 17-hour-long movie.
1: All right. Um, So this follows it's it's based on a book called crossfire um from jim mars um yes um it's on my shelf uh so this follows the case the real life um case of new orleans district attorney jim garrison who um After Kennedy's assassination in 63 notices a couple like oddities um, in New Orleans um, and then kind of forgets about it for a couple of years until he has a random conversation with a senator on a plane and it sparks his interest again about the Kennedy assassination things not adding up and um, he starts to investigate, you know, the New Orleans connections to Lee Harvey Oswald the movie largely follows like the trials and tribulations of his office as they zero in on this uh, like international businessman clay Shaw slash clay bertrand um, as the prime suspect in a possible conspiracy to murder the president um it also deals with you know like the fallout From the family and stuff like that, like as Garrison becomes more and more obsessed and into the case and like you know how like you know people start, you know, messing with the family and all those kind of things. Um, All right. So. Quick. Just backstory, like I was really into the Kennedy assassination as a teenager um, and into my early 20s, I guess. Um, it got kind of reinvigorated by a co-worker um, at one point. Um, I've read a lot on the Kennedy assassination. Um, but in a large part, it's probably because of this movie. I saw this movie in the theaters when I was 11 years old. And it made me start like reading about it years later um i'm just going to focus on the movie here but just so it's clear like I, i i've done a lot of reading on this subject and so watching it again for the first time maybe in like a decade um and really just like looking at it on its technical merits in a lot of ways um the first thing that i would say i think is as an adaptation of a book that focuses on kind of mixing fact and speculation um it is a you know um nonfiction book um detailing a kind of like a case for why an assassination like like a, a conspiracy took place i think it's an astounding achievement as an adaptation um I think to lay out the the case as clearly as Stone does on film, by introducing like key players and the details of the alleged conspiracy that took place, while also combining with the idea of a paranoid thriller and like a family drama at times, um, is a really difficult thing to do, and I think that in that way, it's, um, it's, it's it's quite an achievement in Stone's filmography. Um, I'm just going to go through my list of things that I have to say about this, and I'll, I'm just going to shut up. Um, the first 20-some minutes um, of the movie of Garris and the country, um, learning about the assassination of Kennedy, um, I think does a really good job of showing the gravitas of of that assassination and the rapture like that the country was held in um and i think it does it in both a way that like viewers that were unfamiliar with the assassination could understand the details of it and at the same time people that were present maybe during that time could understand the Chaos and the impact um, of it by, like you know, showing Garrison's initial reaction and showing, like you know, the bar scene where there's people that hated Kennedy um, and are mouthing at the television, those kind of things. Um, <laughs> so. I think that the editing is another strong aspect of this movie. I think by incorporating the original footage and the stock footage and the black and white footage, um, that was filmed contemporaneously, like, you know, um, uh, of real events. I, I think the, f- I think the goal there is that he's trying to pull you into a time period without it feeling like a docudrama. Um, and I think in some ways it is, I think it I think it has that effect at times to where it's like you can like just like lose yourself in those visuals. It is highly manipulative as a someone who is proposing is making an argument. It's highly manipulative as a storyteller i think is fairly effective by mixing the footage together um because largely these are all vignettes that take place in this a lot of it is vignettes in this movie where it's like they're talking to this person and interrogating them and this person is just telling a story you can't just sit there and focus on the person telling the story so by like showing the story play out mixing all these different footages together i think it at least makes the narration of that of that more compelling to watch um again as he's making a case because uh, that's the whole goal of this is to make that case <laughs> deep drink um <clears throat> i think that's the most controversial <sighs> thing i have to say frank um i th- one thing hey is this something you're going to agree with After that swig um I think the acting in this is absolutely first rate, um, all the way across the board. I will die on the hill of having seen a lot of Kevin Costner movies that I think this is Costner's best performance that he's ever given. Oh, yeah. Yeah um but it doesn't matter whether the role is large or small like everybody delivers in this fucking movie so it's like Tommy Lee like Tommy Lee Jones who plays Clay Shaw um Michael Rooker and J.O. Sanders which and then Laurie Metcalf which all play like assistants to Garrison in this movie all do a great job I think Sissy Spacek does the best job she can do with a very limited like kind of like harpy character but i think it makes her sympathetic um largely um throughout i think this is joe pesci's best performance and i would put it up against goodfellas and say that i actually like this performance better than i like his performance in goodfellas overall um there's a scene in the hotel where like it is just this like fierce kinetic energy of him ranting and raving as his wig because he's bald and he like wears a wig to like hide it and he's just like you know and he ends up like you know um you know just chain smoking constantly throughout the whole damn scene and it is i think it's pesci's like best scene that he's ever done in his entire life that's that's the whole famous scene of it's a mystery rap side and raps inside and a riddle inside an enigma um scene it's Great acting. Um and then the small roles in this. Kevin Bacon does like this phenomenal small role in it. Jack Lemon um does this phenomenal small role. Um Water Like there's all these people that wanted to be a part of this movie, um, that actually like asked it just to be a part of it in some way um asner is in it um and then donald sutherland who has a really lengthy scene as a narrator um and isn't on screen that much but um narrates really what largely is the core of the conspiracy um that's being laid out by mars's book and um you know, in this movie. Um, And I think Sutherland does a really great job in that role, um, just in terms of dialogue delivery. And I think the dialogue, uh, and I think you probably disagree with this, but it's like, um, I don't know if it's accurate to the time period in the area. But I I think that it's just interesting enough at times, um, to where it's like, you have things like, you know, um oswald would have as much use for russian as a cat would for pajamas you know and it's like these colloquialisms that um you know i think that are what was the other Uh, um uh, not exactly fresh blood we're sniffing you know um they're old stains but just as telling there, there's this kind of like rustic you know uh language that's used in it a lot throughout the movie um mixed with you know the lease and all these other things that i think make it a really interesting um you know stylistic dialogue that's being presented um and i think the actors again do a fantastic job of delivering that um this movie was really important to me in terms of just being formative in a lot of ways um i can look back on this now oh jesus uh 30 years later um and see how stone tries to manipulate like you know and how um knowing what i do know about like the case itself how he tries to manipulate you know um how over the top he kind of is at times and um uh how i mean look i just watched an interview with stone and, like lex friedman who bless her turned me on to as a youtube interviewer just had an s- interview drop with stone the other day and like stones like half went off the deep end with like his kind of idea that american imperialism is um you know like all-encompassing and like everything relates back to American imperialism and conspiracies and stuff like that to the point where it's like he thinks Putin's a good guy um so he's like really went off the deep end but it's like you see like a formative nature here I think to Stone and a lot of his career um which for a while is you know interesting Maybe not good always, but interesting to some degree until he gets it into a certain point and then just kind of like loses it. Um, but I, I think this is his. To me, this is his best work. Um, to me, that he's ever done. Um, it's the it's the only movie that I could. I think I could ever rewatch his again. Like I don't even think of Natural Born Killers I ever want to rewatch um, necessarily. Um, although I think we should <laughs> at some point. Um, and yeah like i i just i think it's i think it's his best movie overall but it also is a lot of um personal stuff with me and a lot of nostalgia so yeah please feel free to tear into it uh, so i don't know if i can tear into it uh, it's i know there's a lot of things you don't like about it though no, i'm I I, honest i'm mean, I absolutely
0: stylistically do not like the intercutting of archival footage with right over melodramatic filmed whatever like reenactment scenes or whatever. Mm-hmm. It makes it feel like I'm watching the ID channel or something. You know, <laughs> Gotcha. right.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I don't necessarily. I'm not a big fan of the uh, the conspiracy theory angle of everything. In the sense that I think Stone is a bad actor a lot of times in the way that he presents information based on his own personal opinion on things and to me it's not that much different from the way that Fox News like presents stuff. It's like i'm going to show you this thing and we're going to couch it in the idea that it's like like op-ed or whatever except that we're going to present it in a way where it makes it seem like it's a fact
1: you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's extremely
0: manipulative yes right and i'm i don't think that it's bad to look at the different aspects of you know what could have happened to kennedy and i think that most people You know, that grew up in in our generation and before have their own ideas of, you know, the fact that something was not copacetic with the way that it was reported. And you you look at people like Earl Warren and whatever that made their careers. And I mean, Earl Warren was a fucking Supreme Court justice for what, like decades, right? Sure. But all that stuff I felt. So you were 11 when you saw this movies. Maybe it was a little different for you i knew about like the zapruder film and the magic bullet theory like i knew those things so to me it's just like uh, sensationalism in some ways in certain
1: aspects of it um and i guess i'm just you mean something... you knew it by the time you saw this movie
0: yeah yeah, yeah gotcha Yeah, I mean, I didn't know it when I was maybe, I don't know, like 11 years old. But Mm -hmm. by the time I sat down and watched JFK,
1: I was already aware. Right. At least in a a large part, that's because this movie did that. Maybe. No, it absolutely popularized, like, a lot of the, the stuff that people know. Well, I don't
0: know that it was that, for me personally, just because whatever through the natural osmosis of your life of like hearing people talk about things and seeing things on TV. You know, I, when I watched this movie, I was aware of these things. So whatever, I mean, I guess it's like circular logic in some ways, but anyway, I just don't care, I guess. And not that I don't care that John F. Kennedy was assassinated or that there could have been some huge governmental conspiracy, but that kind of stuff is really tiresome to me. It's like, what are you gonna do about it? You know, like your movie, I don't know, whatever. Maybe the movie didn't change something. I think the performances are fantastic. I agree with you on all those points. Um, one part one performance you didn't mention that I also think is great is John Candy's performance. Oh
1: yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um really good, like small cameo role by
1: him, but I don't know if you know this. When he's sweating, that was look completely legit with him sweating like he was, because he had never done a dramatic role before and he was terrified. he does a really good job with it he does it's it's a fantastic
0: performance for as brief as it is yeah yeah pesci's great oldman um that's the other thing too is like stylistically like the cutting into like black and white to show the past i don't know because it's not even consistent throughout the movie that they do that because sometimes the past is in black and white and sometimes it isn't
1: um I don't know it's just it's 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 black and white when it is extrapolating off of extrapolating off of the old footage like kind of like uh, off of like uh, like uh, the speculation um, of what happened in those scenes it is color when it is being narrated as a possible theory it seems is the consistency that's going on there yeah well
0: bully for him i guess i don't know it's annoying um
1: i paid attention to it this time
0: (laughs) so the scene with the
1: the the bacchanal is in color yeah because it's not like it's a complete extrapolation off of like what's being narrated like potentially of what happened without like any kind of um like it's not factual whatsoever
0: well, like. I'd say that's true for a lot of that movie. Um got one of my favorite actors of all time in it, so I appreciate that. In uh Sutherland. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, just too long. I'm not really interested in it. By the time they got to the courtroom scene, I just wanted it to be over. <laughs> um but I recognize like a lot of great things in the movie, and I also I, I do recognize that Stone had this passion for to tell the story and wanted to make sure that I mean it's almost like a counterculture film in that sense that he's like giving you this like alternate history as the viewer who's always been told you know Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated Kennedy and Jack Ruby assassinated Lee Harvey Oswald and you know Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone I mean that was the story you were told for a long time so I guess in a lot of ways like him popularizing or at least like incentivizing people to think differently about it has a lot of value but um just not to me so this was the movie that when i was watching it i actually thought i think i kind of hate this movie Mm -hmm. um and a lot of it is maybe the vignettes and it's weird because usually we're on the other side of the um the table and in that respect where i'm not i don't mind like a movie that's made of vignettes as long as i'm really into them Mm-hmm. I think it's just there's so many scenes in this movie where it's just people sitting around a table, launching conspiracy theories at each other, that I end up, I don't know, just being bored with it
1: in the yeah. long run. So. Yeah, and largely i don't know how, i mean look it's the nature of the thing it, adapting a nonfiction book like that that it's laying out a very kind of again like you know there's speculation in it, obviously but it's like laying out the facts and the possible speculation and it's making it a case in that way i don't know how I should do it it might be boring to you that's fine but it's like it, i it, i don't know how she would do it in that way um it has to be a lot of a lot of talking um you know and people sitting around a table like you know like discussing like that kind of stuff and um but yeah i mean i do think there's like you know regardless of that can you at least like do you at least see that there's like power in certain scenes like uh, do, like that hotel scene with like david ferry like sure Pesci, like great scene yeah like i mean like there, there are certain scenes i think that like outside of that that like really like um are really powerful in a lot of ways um and it's it's there's a lot of like deep character work i think that's like going into this from the actors that i think really elevates some of these scenes so
0: and i I, again i think the acting is the strongest part of it i i think at one point if you would have asked me about oliver stone i would have told you that he was a very important director and a talented director and i think that over the years i've just come to realize that he's a competent director that it just makes movies i don't care about for the most part right so i don't know yeah um that's why the indifferent list is so like weird because it's like I can argue with you that like all five of these movies have a lot of merit. And, mm-hmm. and again, like I very much enjoyed one of the movies on this list. Um, but it's just like, I watch them, and I'm saying, like, eh, you know, I'm not like angry or <clears throat> like watching certain things, you know, wanting to like stop the
1: TV every five minutes. just,
0: it was well, there. Right. Well, me by. Well, here's
1: the thing. The whole point of like doing the indifferent list is because they'll never get talked about well you win it's five five movies like out of the whole year that otherwise would never be talked about before you um, got me again i did um that's fine next year i'm gonna find like two more two more movies that you hate I'll i'm you never the- gonna
0: tell you that i hate uh-huh. a movie again yeah, Never. Uh-huh. uh-huh
1: um that's fine well we'll figure it. i'll figure it out like i mean it's not hard like um <clears throat> When you've seen a movie, and I've seen a
0: movie, I'm always going to be like, what did you think about it? Uh (laughs) And wait until you go, oh, yeah, 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 me too. (laughs) It's good. It's a good movie. All right.
1: Um, Okay, host, you want to pimp next week's episode?
0: What's next week? 74?
1: (laughs) It is. Horror?
0: Yeah. Uh, So next week, we'll be talking about the top five horror movies um, from 1974 as selected by me um it's a good list uh it's actually it's it's there's some some great movies on this list so it should be Uh an enjoyable episode and fun to talk about all these movies um tuesday we have the spin chagrin uh hallmark movies is the category so super (laughs) excited to have to get a trial (laughs) subscription to the hallmark channel um in order to watch a hallmark movie because that's (laughs) apparently the only way you can watch them um but i was looking through a list and i i i I got some real winners i think yeah choose between oh Oh, yeah oh the choose between okay so you're not going to go on a journey oh i don't know i might have to because a lot there's a lot of like serial movies on there where it's like the same character spread out over like five or six movies so Mm. maybe end up Mm. watching a lot of candace cameron beret or however you say her name (laughs) um over the next like few days oh
1: that's really sad
0: um we're on all the social media platforms uh like us follow us on facebook mm-hmm. um podcast is available anywhere podcasts are sold uh so you know podcasts
1: aren't sold <laughs>
0: but, you know they're just they're just not sold for any money
1: right because well. we
0: certainly don't get any out of it um <laughs> spotify uh apple music um iheart radio uh-huh uh, stitcher Podbean. Yeah. uh uh-huh. um, google some shits i don't know google Podcasts. Google, uh-huh. yeah google podcasts. um job, did i say man. apple podcasts? yeah we're there you too we're, we're.
1: <clears throat> so um we really appreciate everyone that listens especially if you've gotten this far into yeah the episode. we're everywhere Sam, samsung didn't like us apparently i don't know what the hell happened there samsung um like their whatever platform is just like not having it that's a shame <laughs> i don't know yeah i'm sure there's only like four people that use it so. <laughs> Right. It's like um it's like Trump's social media platform. Like
0: Oh yeah, we're 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 not on Trumpet or Grinder or <laughs> what? <laughs> What's that other one? I don't know Grinders that's that's
1: that's something completely different. It is it is something completely different, yeah. <laughs> um, uh no, we're not we're not on any of those things. Um, no, um...
0: Yeah, so again, we really appreciate everyone that listens. We appreciate the comments that we get. Yep. Um very much enjoy doing the podcast and look forward to a year from now being super depressed having to talk about five god awful fucking movies that Chris pulls out of his ass and claims to like just to make me sad. Um yeah, so back next week with Top Five Horror 1974, back on Tuesday with the spin chagrin um appreciate everyone have a good night